Miles, who would you say are the definitive new mutants? There's a Mirage, Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Karma, Cypher, Warlock, and Magic, right? Well, and Magma. Everyone always forgets Magma. I think I just kind of repress Magma, because when you think about Magma, you have to talk about Nova Roma, and Nova Roma is dumb. Nova Roma is terrible. What's the deal with that place, anyway? Well, at first, Magma thought it was an actual Roman colony in Brazil that never really grew out of ancient Roman culture. Oh, okay, but it wasn't, though, was it? Well, it turned out at some point that Selene had set it up and populated it with brainwashed kidnap victims so she'd have a dedicated pool of worshippers. Selene? One of the last surviving externals, you know, runs with the Hellfire Club on and off. And she created Nova Roma? No, that's the thing. It turned out she just brainwashed them to believe she had, and it actually was an ancient Roman colony. What?! Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 23rd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we were gone last week. Thanks for bearing with us. But we are now back from our anniversary vacation to Vampire Island. It was great. We definitely recovered the dead body of Dracula. Right? Romantic. I I love being a couple sometimes. Super cool. We made out all over like all the dead vampires. Yes. What is this? Underworld? Come on. No, Uh, no, that would be, well, maybe. I think that would be that we made out with all the dead vampires. I haven't actually seen Underworld, but that's basically what it is, right? Pretty much. Is it necrophilia, like hooking up with a vampire? Uh, Depends on who you ask. So this time, we're going to be jumping into the first ongoing X-Men spinoff, which is The New Mutants. Man, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know we have feelings about The New Mutants. This is one of two ongoing X-Series that we actually went back and collected all the back issues of, because we love it that much. So let's give some context for what was going on at the time that this spinoff first came into existence. Unless you count Dazzler, this is the first ongoing spinoff from X-Men, and it started at a time when when X-Men was selling really well, and Jim Shooter, who was Marvel's EIC at the time, wanted another mutant book because of that. And so he talked to Chris Claremont and his editor, Louise Simonson, and said, let's do another mutant book. And they said, well, we don't really want to. We like the fact that Uncanny X-Men is a unique book. There's really nothing else. It can just, just sort of operate in its own bubble. And apparently Shooter basically said, okay, well, then I'll just find someone else to write it. So Claremont grudgingly agreed to do this series. Yeah, Claremont was really big at the time on having creative control over every aspect of the X-Men that he could. I think, you know, to his credit, it did work very well with a unified writerly and editorial vision like that. But eventually he would start to really overextend himself. At this point, though, you have X-Men, you have New Mutants. He's doing a great job on both. Yeah, you get points where he's writing three, four, five books a month. And that's a lot, especially if you're also doing some of the editing for the line, which he was. Now, there was another line at the time called the Marvel Graphic Novel Series. And these were eight and a half by 11 longer comics there were and the um, best one is definitely greenberg the vampire who can forget greenberg the vampire which was about a vampire who i'm assuming had the name of greenberg yeah it's fantastic it's basically the nice jewish boy hooks up with a christian girl his mother doesn't quite approve of but with vampires and it's really funny and i love it i should actually read that i never have we own it and in fact you own it it's your copy of it Well, I never read it because its name was Greenberg the Vampire. Well, you should because it's delightful. Okay. Well, anyway, the Marvel graphic novel series, the first one was The Death of Captain Marvel, which is a classic, classic story. The series also includes God Loves, Man Kills, my personal favorite X-Men story. Which we are going to cover 
exhaustively at some point on this podcast. Now, originally the plan was not to have the New Mutants premiere in Marvel Graphic Novel, but apparently the volume of of Graphic Novel that was supposed to come out uh, that month was running really late, so Shooter asked Claremont if he could make it uh, bigger so he could use it for an issue of of Marvel Graphic Novel. And Claremont responded, you know, more story, you're singing my song, Jim Shooter. I can have even more dialogue and narration? Yes! So much dialogue. As it turned out, that wouldn't work out because Bob McCloud, who was the artist for the New Mutants, was on his honeymoon, and so the book was late regardless, but it was still a graphic novel. And there you have it. That's sort of the editorial publishing context. The narrative context um, for this is the X-Men have been off in space for the Brood Saga. As far as Xavier knows, and and Maura McTackard, who's also living with him at that point, know, the X-Men are dead. And Xavier is also at this point, he has also been implanted with a Brood Queen embryo. During the Brood Saga, it cuts back periodically to Xavier and Maura on Earth. And one of the things that happens during that time is that Maura convinces Xavier to take in uh, Shan Kwaiman, who is a mutant who was found by Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and Marvel team up number 100. Yeah, it's actually a great scene. He's he's really feeling very sorry for himself, which, you know, I can't really blame the guy. He, essentially, his family are all presumably dead in space. And she guilt trips him into taking in this new mutant, saying, okay, well, if you don't, fine, I'll get in touch with Magneto or Emma Frost. And he's like, wait, what? They're terrible. And she's like, well, the mutants got to learn how to control their powers somehow, so are you going to step up or what? And he says, okay, fine. So Myra McTaggart is a hit and miss character a lot. And eventually we're going to have Graham McMillan on the podcast to talk about why he hates her more than anything else in X-Men. But she is consistently awesome in the lead up to New Mutants. Oh, yeah. I freaking love the character. So, yeah, that's where New Mutants comes out of. The X-Men are gone, presumably dead, and this one uh, 19-year-old mutant is staying at the Xavier Mansion with Professor Xavier. So here's a question. What's this going to do to us and our our episode scheduling? Because so far, we've had one ongoing X-Series, and we've gone on, you know, brief tangents from that. Now there are two. And eventually, there are going to be nine in the 90s and 15 in the 2010s. That's a good question. So I say for now, we can basically cut back and forth between Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants, do an arc here, an arc there, have them roughly parallel each other. And they're going to cross over a fair lot. And again, we're not, we're not covering every single arc of each, so we'll we'll figure that out as we go. Also, just as a moment to the smart-ass listeners who are going to write to us at hearing this and say, well, you should just do nine episodes a week. No. We love you, but we can't do that. We don't love you that much. I'm assuming a lot of people are listening to this show primarily being familiar with the X-Men themselves, the core team of X-Men. You're missing out. The New Mutants are great. They really are. And honestly, to fully understand the X-Men universe, looking at spinoffs like New Mutants and X-Factor is vital. They all cross back and forth. They all contribute to a larger tapestry that is the X-Men universe. This is good stuff. Bear with us. Trust us. They've also all got very different tones. One of the questions that we get a lot is, where should I start with X-Men? What are the X-Men books? I should read. My answer to that is very similar to my answer to what comics should I read if I get into comics, which is what else do you like to read? What are what are the genres that appeal to you? What are what are the things that you find appealing and that you find turnoffs in fiction? Because one of the pluses of there being so many X titles is that they really do span a huge tonal and narrative range. I think none more than New Mutants. A couple episodes ago, Kurt Busiek talked about how he liked the Silver Age X-Men because it was this sort of boarding school comedy adventure story. And New Mutants could easily have been just that, but it's really different. It's a lot more about adolescent angst and what it means to grow up and define yourself as an individual. It does have a lot of that, though. We've talked about X-Men teenage hijinks books. It's very much one of those a lot of the time, but not always. And it runs, it really runs the gamut from lighthearted, silly stories to being, I think, at its time, the darkest X title. Oh, absolutely. At certain points. I mean, after they come back from the dead with a Beyonder and the whole thing with Inferno. I mean, we'll, we'll get to all that later, of course. Well, everything's dark during Inferno. Even Excalibur is dark during Inferno. It is. 
So I think an easy parallel to draw, because this is very much a getting the team together kind of book, so it feels a lot like Giant Size X-Men number one, or at least it could. The things they have in common, it's the getting the band together story. It's also a large issue, standalone, leads into an ongoing. There's eight or nine years between those. Well, first of all, Giant Size X-Men number one wasn't Chris Claremont. That's but, true. But he was originally writing in a, a tone and style that very much came out of it. Uh, New Mutants is Claremont, and it's a Claremont who is a much much better writer than the Claremont who first picked up X-Men. And so what you've got is a story that is much, much more character-driven. It's not Xavier doing the world tour and recruiting all of these kids. It's all of these kids having lives and stories that bring them into intersections with Xavier. Another difference that's also there between Giant Size X-Men number one and the New Mutants graphic novel is that there's really no transition necessary in this one. In Giant Size X-Men number one, it's all about taking the original 5-7 X-Men and moving them onto the new team with Wolverine and Colossus and Storm and everyone. And in this, the X-Men are all gone, so we're basically starting from scratch, which allows us to really focus on the characters themselves, to focus on the situations that they find themselves in when this all begins. Okay, so who are those characters going to be? So the first one is Rain Sinclair. First name is R-A-H-N-E. I can confirm that is in fact Rain, so say it that way in your head. She is a character who will be known as Wolfsbane, but I should point out that in the New Mutants graphic novel, I don't believe any of the characters uh, have codenames at this point. Except for Karma. Karma comes with a codename. Oh, that's true, because she was already a, a super-powered character from a different book. Wolfsbane is one of the youngest New Mutants. She's 14 when the book starts. She's uh, Scottish, and actually the book opens with Moira McTaggart finding her. It also opens with one of Miles' very favorite conceits of Claremont X-Men, and that is the angry European mob. I love angry European mobs so much. It, no matter what country they're in, they're all kind of the same, and they're all angry, and they're all unreasonable, and I love them. Maybe there's just one. Okay, okay, new headcanon. They're Latveria's primary export. You write to Latveria if you need an angry mob. They send a group out on a work visa to rattle pitchforks as necessary, and then they all go back home. Oh, it's sort of like how in Portland you can rent goats to clear your field of grass? You can rent an angry mob from Dr. Doom. Yes, it is exactly like that. So let it be official. But th this mob is actually a little bit different than some ones we've seen before, in that at this point, X-Men is not afraid, or New Mutants in this case, to directly address things like religious and racial bigotry. And that is going to get so much more explicit even after this. I mean, that's we mentioned the graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills, and if you can't tell from the title, it is all about that. And in this case, it's this very explicitly fundamentalist Christian angry mob going after Rain, who is a straight-up werewolf. I mean, her mutant power basically makes her a werewolf. Moira, she basically says, hey, this is my land, get the hell off of it. This is peak badass Moira McTaggart, this particular scene. Because you may recall in Giant Size X-Men number one, you know, Nightcrawler was being cornered by an angry mob, and Xavier got them out of the way using telepathy. Moira McTaggart doesn't have any superpowers. She literally just yells at them until they leave. She's just badass and Scottish at them, and then they just sort of go away saying, well, you know, you're wrong, but we're going to go because you're scary. Yeah, she will. I, I assume that she could totally have taken them all if they attacked her. Moira knows Rain. Rain uh, basically grew up being raised, raised by the church. She's an orphan, I believe, right? Yeah, and Moira, it turns out, actually delivered her because Moira McTaggart is as a comic book doctor, an expert in everything, and also a licensed medical doctor. So Rain, power-wise, like I said, she's a werewolf, so she can be in girl form, in wolf form, and she has a number of sort of transitional states in between. 
many of which are hilarious. They're drawn kind of weird. They're, at least in the New Mutants graphic novel, all of her transitional states really, really look like they come straight out of the D&D first edition monster manual, and I kind of love that. Yeah, Werewolf the Apocalypse, this is not, it's true. But yeah, so her powers, she, none of the New Mutants, aside from uh, Karma at this point, can really control their powers at all. They don't know what they're doing. Um, And so often with Rain, for years and years in the future, you'll see her go into her sort of transitional wolf state when she's really angry or shocked or surprised. She's a very pious and kind uh, person who's ashamed of her powers because she believes what the mob does, that they're basically from the devil. And so this is something she's ashamed of, you know, having this these emotional outbursts turn into outbursts of, you know, the devil. Yeah, she's been raised by this dude named Reverend Craig, who's been telling her for her entire life that she's evil because she was born out of wedlock. And then when her powers emerged, like, they really reinforced that narrative. And something I didn't really think of until I went back and reread this is how much as a character she predicts Edie from Generation Hope. Oh, yeah, the character who's uh, a main character of Wolverine and the X-Men these days. I think that's absolutely true. The same sort of I am sin incarnate uh, feeling toward her powers and identity. On the exact opposite end of the confidence spectrum, we have Roberto Bobby DaCosta, who will be known as Sunspot. And man, he is such a teenager. Yeah, they're really all such teenagers. And again, that's something I really love about this series, because you can kind of look at these five and eventually the the full team as a kind of great spectrum of really, really well-written kids. That's a way in which I think this is inherently superior to the Silver Age, specifically by today's standards, because the Silver Age, you have these five white kids who are all from relatively similar backgrounds. And they all look 30. But in this, you see a great deal of diversity in terms of gender, in terms of background, in terms of ethnicity, and I really, really like seeing that. There is sort of the same problem of everyone having to have a really different cultural background, which is a kind of a different diversity conversation. But tabling that for now and going back to Bobby DaCosta, Bobby DaCosta is Brazilian and he's rich and he's super confident and he's great at everything. His powers manifest at a soccer game where he is kicking all kinds of ass until a couple players on the opposite team start making racist jokes at him. Yeah, uh, so Bobby's father is black and his mother is white. They start calling him half-breed, and in the chaos of the soccer match, start beating the hell out of him, which is when his powers manifest and he throws one of them across the field. Like we were talking about a minute ago, I really like that this is unafraid to directly look at racism, because it's there. And that's actually something that really bothers me about some comics that came later, because you see gradually uh, Bobby get more and more white the way he's drawn. That's a persistent problem in superhero comics. This is one of the more dramatic examples of it, I think. I mean, I think a lot of people heard mixed race and assumed that he should basically just look like a very tan white person. And, you know, representation matters. There are not a whole lot of black characters, even in the X-Men. And so whitewashing one of them like that sucks. I really wish they wouldn't do it. I'd like to see them do better about that going forward. Bobby's powers, he absorbs solar energy and he can go into sunspot form gives him super strength, but he's still as vulnerable in that form as he is in human form. He's one of those very rare characters who has super strength, but not in vulnerability. And later on, we see his powers mature, as we do with most of these characters, and he can fly around and shoot energy blasts because it's so 90s, so of course he can. He also gets this amazing huge mullet. It's beautiful. He's a great character. He's got all of these guys are great characters. I don't think there is a character in the central New Mutants lineup who I don't absolutely love i completely agree and in fact one of my favorites up next is sam guthrie cannonball so he's from rural kentucky his father works in a coal mine and when the story starts had died recently so we find out that sam was going to go off to college and instead he's going into the mines to take over his father's position and you mentioned he came from a really big family and man the guthrie family is one of my favorite continuity fails in x-men oh geez seriously because for a really long time as far as i can tell 
no one actually had a style guide or a series Bible for the Guthrie family. And so the number of them changes a lot and their names change a lot. See, my assumption here is that it's, we're not really in Earth 616 the whole time in that specific timeline variant. It's like 616.1, They're They're all exactly identical, except the Guthrie's are different. Nobody ever notices. Isn't Sam an external or something? Maybe it has to do with that. Oh, let's not even talk about that whole thing. Yeah, later on we find out Sam's this sort of immortal super mutant. And, you know, we'll get to that only when we absolutely have to. For now, though, he is the nicest kid in the school. Power-wise, what can he do? First of all, he can yell one of the most memorable Claremontisms of all time. I'm nigh invulnerable when I'm blasting. Mikey Nielsen, this is for you. He can basically rocket his body forward like he's, well, a cannonball, hence the name. So his lower body sort of combusts and he explodes forward and can fly that way. He is, in fact, nigh invulnerable in this form. His clothing doesn't burn up. He's not harmed by impact when he's blasting forward. He's also completely freaked out by it, though. There are some great panels in the New Mutants graphic novel of him, you know, using his powers the first couple times with his eyes closed and his hands just over his face. Oh, yeah, it's adorable. And it's, it's really charming. Personality-wise, he's uh, sort of respectful and obedient. He really believes in doing the right thing, which is interesting because while the other New Mutants get together and team up fairly quickly, initially in this, Sam ends up getting a job with the villain. He does it because he loses his job at the mine. This place hires him and offers to pay him a lot more. And he just really wants to take care of his family. Even as a henchman, he is the most polite henchman ever. But yeah, going back, like he's asked his first day on the job at the mine. What about your father's dream for you to go to school? And he says, my pa's dream is still good, Mr. Lewis. Maybe it won't come true for me, but it will for one of my brothers or sisters. I'll see to that. Oh, dude, Sam Guthrie. Yeah, he is all about family and he's all about looking out for his own. That's something that's going to continue with him. The next one up is the character who is going to be set up as sort of his equal opposite. And the two of them will eventually end up the co-leaders of the New Mutants. And that is Danielle Moonstar. She's Cheyenne. She's from Colorado. She's an orphan as far as she knows. That's going to be significant later. She lives with her grandfather. She's a great character. She's one of my favorite characters. She's written so well so much of the time, and so much of her backstory and her powers are everything weird and stereotypical about American Indians in superhero comics, and especially American Indians in Claremont X-Men. Well, yeah, because, I mean, she's coming on the tail a number of years after Thunderbird, who is super stereotypical. She has much more of a distinct personality, and she moves away from that more, and I think identity and cultural identity stuff is written a little better around her, but she's also got stuff like, you know, her powers are illusion-based. Her codename is Mirage, and she's able to manifest usually people's greatest desires or their greatest fears, But she also randomly has a telepathic link with animals and a lot of sort of the stereotypical Native American character power set that goes with that. That's a shame. That's kind of obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, her powers I find are actually fascinating, the the illusion-based ones. What, what I like about them is that they're really good shorthands to show what's going on in the head of the target. It's very show-don't-tell in a literal sense in terms of the personality of whoever she's affecting them with. Later, she's also going to become several different iterations of a Norse Valkyrie, which is just rad as hell. I mentioned her being one of my favorite characters, and something you don't see a lot really in media in general, but also in superhero comics, is really unabashedly and unapologetically angry women who aren't written off as bitches or shrews or whatever. And she is. She so is. Yeah, I like that. I mean, initially, she's sort of generically angry at the white man, which, well, as you were saying, there's oh, that's a little iffy narratively. But after that, it's revenge because her, her grandfather is killed by uh, mandroids, I believe, who are working for the Hellfire Club. Are they seriously mandroids? Or do they just have, like, similar hats? It looks like mandroid armor to me. If they were eating a mandroid, which we could tell for sure. Maybe they are under the helmet. But 
she basically just wants revenge. She wants to kill them. I mean, and, and there's this violence, this rage to the character for a long, long time that never fully goes away. And that's, I, I completely agree. That's great to see in a female character. It's great to not have the, some, a character be so stereotypically not angry. Um, and so last of the original five, we have Shan Koi Man, uh, who is Karma. Now, we've mentioned her before. She was the one that was already with Xavier when this starts. She's the one that during the Brood Saga, when it flashes back to Earth at one point, Moira McTaggart convinces Xavier to take in. And her powers are sort of telepathic. She can basically possess people for, for short periods of time. Now, her backstory we find out about in that Marvel team-up issue we mentioned earlier. It is seriously over-the-top tragic. I would say even past the obscure territory. Like, so uh, she's from South Vietnam, and her father was an officer in their army— and he was forced to take his kids from battle to battle. Her brother Tran was actually rescued by their uncle, who was like a crime lord general. Then when her father was killed during the fall of Saigon, she came over to the United States on a boat with her mother and her younger siblings, and the boat was like attacked by Thai pirates, and she and her mother were both raped, and her mother died. And then when she got to the United States, she had to work with her evil uncle and got involved with this fight with Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four while she was trying to rescue her younger siblings from them and ended up having to kill and absorb her brother Tran. That's like, that kind of running sibling thing in X-Men, isn't it? it or absorbing like the absorbed a sibling? evil sibling? It is, it's true, but... That's a really, really weird trope. Right? Shan has pretty much the roughest backstory of, like, any character I can think of in, in Marvel Comics right now. I'm sure there are worse that I'm not, but, but god damn... But anyway, her life is much better these days. She's working with Professor Xavier. She's got younger siblings whom she's supporting and taking care of. And she ends up basically getting a work-study gig doing administrative work at the Xavier School because she's she's a very accomplished polyglot. She's a little bit older than the rest of the, the New Mutants. I think she's 19 or 20. 19, the yeah, I believe The rest of them are between so. 14 and 16. Yeah, so personality-wise, she doesn't get defined as well as some of the other New Mutants in large part because she is only with the book briefly before being gone for a long time. But she's very resilient. She's sort of got this sadness to her, understandably, given her background, but is very driven, not one to give up, very stubborn. She's actually going to be the leader of the team at first. Going into the plot, we see those character intros, and throughout, they're being watched by somebody. Somebody we initially only see turning the dials on a monitor. It's very, very sort of Eric the Red or, or Mr. Sinister or Dr. Claw. Dr. Claw. Just see his hands. Exactly. I love it. Yeah, but like Dr. Claw, if he wore hot pink frock coats. And as we know, there's only one person in the Marvel Universe who wears hot pink frock coats on the regular, and that is Donald Pierce. Yeah, it's like a spoiler as soon as we see that sleeve. So Donald Pierce, you may remember, he is one of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club. And of the four of them, he is the only non-mutant. He's actually a human cyborg. He's based on and, and named after actor Donald Sutherland and I think uh, Hawkeye Pierce from MASH. So he's doing the classic villain watching on the monitors thing. And that's something you see a lot. And I think there are two significant exceptions to it, who, who are characters who spend a lot of time watching people on monitors, but who, who they actually pull back to. And those are Dr. Doom and Arcade. Because they're generally, I think, just much more entertaining than whatever's happening on the monitor. Oh, yeah, yeah. They can do these great rant things. Especially do, when they're together. They do whole body rants. Like, they're not just sort of talking. They're flailing and putting their arms up and up and cursing the heavens and stuff. It's great. Yeah, if Doctor Doom is in a panel, the focus of the panel is Doctor Doom. This is correct comic book storytelling. Focus upon Doom or be destroyed! I think he's, he's got all of the artists intimidated as well. Aw. Doctor Doom is the angry narrator? 
maybe. So we find out that uh, Donald Pierce, so he's the, the only non-mutant in the inner circle, he actually really hates mutants. We hadn't seen him be super racist very much before, but he resents the other members of the inner circle and wants to take over the Hellfire Club. He also wants to kill a bunch of mutants, including Professor Xavier. So he's been watching all of these young mutants and figures, well, Xavier's going to go after them. Let's lure him into this trap and I'll assassinate all of them while I'm at it. He also has his own army of Hellfire goons. He's kidnapped a woman named Tessa, who we've seen in the background a whole lot. She's going to become Sage. We're not going to talk about her. Let's not talk about Tessa. Ever. We can't not talk about her. It is our duty. We cannot talk about her here because she's entirely tangential to the story. Entirely reasonable. He also has a number of goons with him, you know, like the Hellfire Club people in the bodysuits with the weird shy guy type masks. Not, we should note, Harvey and Janet, who are our favorite Hellfire goons. That's true. They're off elsewhere, you know, playing bridge or tennis or going on vacation with their families or something. To Vampire Island. To Vampire Island. I want to go on vacation with Harvey and Janet. But these are actually the same goons we've seen a couple times before. Now, during the Hellfire Club saga that leads into the Dark Phoenix saga, Wolverine's going through the Hellfire Club mansion and cutting up all these soldier types. We see them again when Emma Frost switches bodies with Storm, and they mention that they've now been cybernetically augmented and, and super Wolverine gives mutants. them a slightly hilarious lecture on transhumanism and, he does, and on embracing true. transhumanism. And here they are again. And in fact, we're going to see them again and again. They're going to end up as these sort of punk cyborg mercenary race guys called the Reavers in Australia. Yeah, later on they're going to straight up crucify Wolverine, but for now what they're mostly doing is going and trying to chase and capture these these newly manifested mutants. When it starts out, we have Rain and Shan with Professor Xavier and Moira. Xavier then gets a letter from Black Eagle, who is Mirage's grandfather. Basically saying, yeah, so my granddaughter's got these powers. Uh, Xavier was randomly best friends with her father. Yeah, we find that out. That's kind of a weird never mentioned before retcon. Yeah, but okay. Xavier has spent his early life going around and, and forming close-knit, plot-relevant friendships, basically. And then never talking about them until they become relevant. Exactly. And so they go to meet up with Danielle Moonstar, and when they get there, they quickly find out that A, Black Eagle is dead, and B, there are mandroids attacking! And so they fight them. Xavier learns from the mandroids that are attacking that there are two other targets, um, Roberto da Costa's in Brazil and Sam Guthrie's in, in Kentucky. They disobey the primary D&D rule of never splitting the party. And, and they get totally owned because of it. Right. And so we see two groups, and it's cutting back and forth between them. There's Professor Xavier with Rain, and then there is uh, Moira, Danny, and Shan. Moira, Danny, and Shan are in Brazil, and they're finding Roberto da Costa, and they don't get to him in time. He and his girlfriend are captured by Hellfire Goons. They get there in time to save Roberto, but Juliana is killed. I mean, it's easy to gloss over that point, but this is a 14-year-old boy who's had everything go right for him, and his life is suddenly starting to fall apart with his mutant powers manifesting and his girlfriend getting kidnapped, and then she's just sitting here dying in his arms. And he responds with the kind of drama that only a 14-year-old can muster. No, I lie. I killed her. My arrogance, my stupidity. I thought, with my power, I could save her. Then no one would remember Roberto the monster. I would be a hero. Everything would be as it once was. And on the one hand, it's easy, it's easy to mock the kid because he's being really over the top. But if you're ever allowed some melodrama, if your girlfriend is dying in your arms, like, I think that's legit. The next target is, is Sam Guthrie. Xavier and Rain go to pick him up. But unfortunately for them, Sam has taken a high-paying job with Donald Pierce. And so he attacks their jeep because he's set up to ambush them. And Rain gets away and turns into her wolf form and escapes, and Sam being Sam is like, okay, well, I've attacked the target, and I gotta get this guy out of the jeep. This thing's on fire. I hope he's okay. Wasn't there a girl? Maybe she's okay. Maybe she she died in the woods. I should try to find her, too. Again, Sam Guthrie is the nicest henchman ever. Thug Boy of Empowered has nothing on Cannonball. 
Ultimately, Sam ends up bringing a lot of them in as prisoners and says what he wants Sam to do with the the prisoners. And Pierce, being a proper supervillain, of course, says, get rid of them. And Sam's like, well, I don't understand. What what do you mean? What do you want me to do? Toss him off the property? Turn him over to the sheriff? Oh, Sam Guthrie, you are the you are the sweetest henchman. And Pierce is like, Cretan, I want them killed. And Sam's like, no, sir. He just says, no, sir, like one word, N-O-S-S-I-R, and it's so freaking charming. He's he's such an upright guy, and I love him. He's so much a 16-year-old trying to be what his idea of like a good man is. That's kind of cannonball in a nutshell. I think so, yeah. So there's this big fight as all the new mutants fight Pierce and his various goons who are not Sam Guthrie. And in the meantime, Rain, who's gotten severely injured in this scuffle, like she's got a punctured lung and everything, Xavier is telling her how to free him from this telepathic dampening machine that he's been attached to. And despite her severe injuries, she does. And Xavier and Karma manage to control Pierce, and they're able to get away, leaving all of the goons, including Sam. Sam's like, what do I do now, sir? They just leave, and he's sort of left like, oh man, I've made some bad decisions today. And that's the last we'll ever see of Cannonball. Indeed. Lies, all lies. So yeah, after this, it, it actually goes back to a very familiar scene. This is We mentioned this is a callback in a lot of ways to Giant Size X-Men number one. And here we've actually got a callback to X-Men number one, the first issue. In fact, uh, the very first page, I believe... We have each of the characters getting ready, trying on their costumes, and having some thought bubbles. And there's a great moment specifically. Oh man, can, can we talk about Sunspot in this scene? Because Sunspot in this scene is the best thing ever. Because first of all, he's got two things on his wall now at the Xavier Institute. There's a picture of Wolverine and there's a pinup calendar. That really sums him up. He's like, I like girls and I want to be a badass. Done. There's also a moment where he's imagining, putting on sort of the tights part of his costume, and imagining specifically his girlfriend in heaven watching him. And I love the idea that Roberto da Costa's idea of heaven is watching him put on tights. This is a strange uh, spirituality, but, you know, I've heard worse. No, I've I, think, worse. I think this goes with the whole ego thing. Like, obviously heaven would be this. You know, come on, man. It doesn't get any... Again, he is so that specific 14-year-old boy. But yeah, so Professor Xavier telepathically calls everyone, Attention, students, this is Professor Xavier calling. Report to me at once. Class is now in session. And that's almost, it's not word for word, but it's very close to a line he has in X-Men number one, calling in the original five on the first page. And they do. They all show up. They've got uniforms that are a pretty direct callback to the original X-Men costumes. You know, the black and the yellow, big yellow stripe down the center. They're all standardized with one notable exception is Danielle Moonstar. Yeah, so she shows up and she's wearing some some Cheyenne clothing over it. Like her belt is different. She has different boots. And it's nothing super overt. She's clearly still in, in, in a New Mutants uniform. And Xavier being Xavier is like, yeah, no, that that's not the uniform. Come on, come on. To which she replies, I'm also an individual, Professor. You say we must wear these clothes. I will do as you ask, but in my own manner. If that bothers you, I can leave. This was literally the first thing that you told me about that character. That's part of what just made me decide, yeah, yes, this is a character I'm totally into. As someone who who regularly got in a fair amount of trouble for flooding dress codes. Um, <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. And Xavier, again, we mentioned in our last episode about Scott and Jean's wedding that that was Xavier done well. And I think the New Mutants graphic novel is also. He has some thoughts to himself after this. Once I would have forced her to conform and would have been wrong to do so. These are individuals as mutants and people, and that uniqueness must be respected. Their spirits must be shaped, not broken. And that becomes kind of the watchword of New Mutants as it evolves as a series. 
And finally, after this, as they're all standing there in uniform, the doorbell rings. And it is, of course, Cannonball, who will be the, the fifth member of the team. Looking sort of sheepish, but actually Rain, who's the one that was most severely injured, is the one that says, let's forgive him. And it's nice. And it's the whole them, uh, you know, shaking hands and putting their arms on each other's shoulders. And it's one of those endings that is really very much a beginning, especially since we will now have 100 issues of New Mutants following this. Now, those 100 issues kind of break up for me into four distinct eras. This issue begins kind of the first one, which is is the Claremont era. And that's the first seven volumes collected. It's a lot of the series. Yeah. And the first first part of it, we just mostly see these five characters. Uh, We see the status quo much as it is in the New Mutants graphic novel. But that doesn't last for too long because we're going to start seeing new people show up pretty soon. That's sort of the era I think of as as Claremont, too. And this is the era where we also see Bill Sienkiewicz come on as regular artist, which defines this book and this really, I think, changed what superhero comics were and could be visually at the time it was coming out. And at that point, that's actually the point where four other characters joined the team, including three of my all-time favorites. There's Magma, who we discussed in the cold open. Amara Aquila, she can control lava, has a relationship with Earth, can cause earthquakes to an extent. Magic, we've met a while before. It's Liana Rasputin. Um, you may recall her from the episode that was entirely about her that we did. Yeah, and she's she is awesome. She's one of my favorite characters. And my two very, very, very favorite new mutants, Cypher and Warlock. Cypher is Doug Ramsey, and we actually meet him in X-Men originally. He's a, he's a classmate and a really good friend of Kitty Pride's, who turns out later to be a mutant. Warlock is... I don't know. Maybe maybe Cannonball isn't the best kid. Maybe Warlock is the best kid. Yeah, Warlock is this... He's an alien from this race called the Technarchy, and he's really only Bill Sienkiewicz could fully draw him. He's just sort of this angry scribble on a page made of machinery and big crazy eyes, and I love him. Yeah, he's fantastic and perfect. The issue where they both join the team is one of my favorite issues of all time. It's called Slumber Party. So those nine are kind of the definitive roster of the New Mutants in a lot of ways. Yeah, and after that is when things get a little different, and I think... I like to think of what comes next as the Lost Era. Now, Claremont doesn't write New Mutants forever. Eventually, it gets taken over by his former editor, Louise Simonson, who also, as a side note, is married to Walter Simonson, my favorite Thor writer uh, and artist ever. And they had been at that point collaborating for a long time on a series called X Factor, which is actually my favorite X-Men spinoff. Yeah. So she takes over and she adds some of the characters from X Factor. There were some teenagers and children that they had rescued who briefly were on a team called the X-Terminators, specifically Rusty Collins, Skids, Boom Boom and Richter. And Boom Boom and Richter especially we'll see a lot of later in X-Force. Yeah, so Rusty is pyrokinetic. Skids has this force field. Boom Boom is just fucking delightful. Um, <laughs> she's terrible and wonderful. She's ama- oh, she's, she is so great. When we get to her in the story, we have to get Elle Collins onto the show to talk about her because she can sum up why Boom Boom is awesome better than anyone ever. But yeah, Boom Boom is amazing and she can she can create these little time, time bombs. bombs. And then Richter surprisingly appropriately named, and this is his actual name, not just his code name, uh, Richter Generates Earthquakes. Mm-hmm. And then... And then there's the Liefeld era. And you know, I don't even think of this as New Mutants. It's the title is New Mutants, but this reads like and feels like a prologue to the first X-Force ongoing series. So a bit of context here. In this portion of X-Men history, uh, a lot of the books weren't selling as well, and there were a lot of really hotshot artists, including uh, Rob Liefeld, who was known for having big muscle, big guns, lots of pouches kind of art. I mean, these days people talk about him often very derisively, but at the time it 
it's impossible to overstate how much he was selling. He was in a freaking Levi's commercial. So once he came on and Marvel was giving artists more and more direction over the way stories went and essentially forced Louise Simonson out of the book, the tone of the book drastically changes. This guy named Cable, who you may have heard of, shows up for the first time. Now, Cable's an interesting character at this point. He was a guy with a robot arm and a lot of guns who was very grizzled. And we also saw Domino, Shatterstar, Feral, and Warpath all join in quick succession, and a lot of the old team members leave. And pretty soon after that is when New Mutants ended with issue 100 and became a new book called X-Force, which was very different in tone. Although, again, I would really argue that it started to become X-Force long before the New Mutants ended. That really, when you, when Liefeld comes onto the book, and especially when Liefeld starts co-plotting the book... It's really no longer recognizable as the New Mutants that we knew and loved. And for that reason, I think there's a part of me who was reading at the time that will forever be somewhat resentful. I've come to appreciate X-Force since then, but, you know, I kind of wish it had been its own thing and not just had New Mutants drastically shift into something else. We're going to be going through all of those eras in more detail later, but for now, you've got questions. Yes, indeed. So, first question. Marie Collins on Tumblr asks... Karma of the New Mutants, groundbreaking lesbian superhero of color, or chronically narratively punished cluster of overlapping stereotypes about refugees, abuse survivors, and queer people? Yes. (laughs) All of those things. Yeah, I think she's both. Karma is, man, Karma has been written interestingly and inconsistently over time. At her worst, I absolutely agree that she's the chronically narratively punished cluster of overlapping stereotypes about refugees, abuse survivors, queer people, and I would also add fat people at one point in the story. It just is pervasive. But those things, and I, I don't know how much of this is headcanon and how much of it is textual. For me, I think one of the things that's interesting about her is that she's not written very often as a stereotypically tortured past character who is defined by that both functionally and narratively. These are all things that come up and they're all used as plot hooks. But the fact that she's really badass and fluent in three languages and ultimately turns out to be hella gay and things that come up in context of actual story are much, much more pervasively defining and present in what she actually does in the comics. Yeah, I think both of the both of the things that you you brought up are absolutely true of her. But for me, the groundbreaking lesbian superhero of color part is a lot more defining. Allocator on Tumblr asks, While the New Mutants don't have as many notable supporting characters as the X-Men, they do have a whole host of interesting recurring characters, both good and bad. Who's your favorite recurring character that's not a member of the team itself? So for me, this is kind of a cheat answer because obviously this is a bigger character in other contexts, but... I would say Magneto. Magneto, for a long time during the Louise Simonson run, is the headmaster of the school. And it's a very different side of the character than we've ever seen. He's almost like the, you know, he's like the principal belding from Saved by the Bell of the New Mutants. He's always, he's... I I reject that analogy so hard. Well, I said it anyway. Uh, And no, I mean, in the sense that the New Mutants are all off going, doing things on their own, you know, going behind the headmaster's back, and he's just sort of continually exasperated. Except the difference there is that principal belding never got frustrated enough to send the New Mutants to to the Hellfire Academy and then become a supervillain again. My favorite character, my favorite New Mutants character is Lila motherfucking Chaney. Oh, I love Lila Chaney so much. She's great. So Lila Chaney is an intergalactic rock star and bandit. I want to hang out with this person or be this person. Right? She's basically the outlaw Joan Jett of the Marvel Universe. Her power is that she can teleport, but only super long distances. So like across galaxies. And she's got a rock band, and in her first appearance in a New Mutants annual, she literally steals the Earth. Yup, and then fences it. It's great. So yeah, Lila Cheney forever, man. I love, like, there is no logical end to my love of Lila Cheney. 
So if I were to pick a more traditional answer, I would say the Hellions. The Hellions are the equivalent of the New Mutants, but under Emma Frost, the White Queen. And they all have really interesting, strange powers, and they're all kind of jerks, but also still very sympathetic. They're clearly the the rival school kind of characters, and I, I love them. I miss them a lot. You know, we talked about this being kind of a teenager hijinks book, and there's, there's sort of the typical school rivalry thing, only they're both superhero teams. And yeah, the, the Hellions are very much written as being kind of the New Mutants' equal counterparts. Like, they're the kids from the evil school, but they're also really sympathetic, and a lot of them eventually end up friends with the New Mutants, and a couple of them even end up joining the X-Men, and the rest of them are, are killed horribly off in a later story, unfortunately. But yeah, the Hellions are pretty great. Oh, yeah. Their costumes are kind of dubious. Well, what can you do? That's why they're the bad guys, I guess. Well... So I believe that is all the time we have for the New Mutants graphic novel. All right, so Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts. Bobby also co-hosts the awesome podcast Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can find online at welcometothatwholething.com as well as on iTunes and other standard platforms. You should check us out at our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for every episode we do that go up on Sundays, along with articles, art, and a bunch of other content. New episodes go up at Comics Alliance every Thursday and rachelandmiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher on Sundays. If you're enjoying the show and would like to support it, which we hope you do, please take a minute to check out our Patreon campaign. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com, and please also rate and review us on iTunes and on Stitcher. Next week, we'll finally be back with the X-Men, who are themselves finally back from space. (laughs) 